There's something, there's something very uh, special about those, those old hymns that sing about theology and sing about doctrine. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. There is a fountain drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to begin reading in verse 12 this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. Now when he had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill that what was spoken from Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan of Galilee to the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's go ahead and read through verse 22. And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that thousands and thousands of years later, you still speak through your word. That you chose by your sovereign, omnipotent hand to use the foolishness of the message preached to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Lord, this morning, may you speak through your word. May you use the foolishness of the message preached to demonstrate the glory of Christ. May your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts here this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, if you look at Matthew's account, we remember that the book of Matthew was written by Matthew. All right, let's, 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 y- y- y'all weren't prepared. You weren't ready. So let, 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 let's start again. The book of Matthew was written by Matthew, and it was written to the Jews, and it was written to present Jesus as the son of David, the Messiah. Very good. And so we understand that the book of Matthew, John, um, <laughs> The book of Matthew, Matthew is writing and he is portraying Christ in a, in a very specific light. He is intending to, to demonstrate a specific theme as he's writing the book of Matthew. And if you notice, the book of Matthew omits a great deal of ministry that takes, or a great deal of, of the events in the life of Jesus that take place from Matthew chapter 4 verse 11 to Matthew chapter 4 verse 12. Notice what it says. Look at verse 11. This is Jesus coming out of the wilderness and the uh, verse 11 in Matthew chapter 4 that the devil left him and behold angels came and began to minister to him verse 12 
Now, when Ian heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. If you do, uh, if you do your homework, you'll find out that there's about a whole year of Jesus' life that is, that is unaccounted for. John the Baptist isn't taken into custody. He's not taken into prison uh, un until sometime after uh, Jesus, is, leaves, Jesus leaves the wilderness. Because remember, right before Jesus enters the wilderness, what happens? He's baptized by who? John the Baptist. And so the events didn't happen like this. It didn't go, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, he spends 40 days in the wilderness, and immediately comes out of the wilderness, and oh, by the way, John's in prison. That's not how the, the events took place. In fact, the Gospel of John gives us some insight into how the events took place and the chronology of what took place. It tells us that after Jesus came out of uh, the wilderness, that there was a wedding in Cana that he was invited to, and while he was there, that he changed water into wine. The Scripture also tells us that Jesus then goes to Jerusalem during the Passover, and he finds the temple being turned into a marketplace. And he drives out the money changers. And he drives out the, 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 uh, all the animals that were there in the temple court. It also tells us of a, of a conversation and an and interaction that Jesus has with a certain Samaritan woman. And so we, are, we know that there are events in between Matthew chapter 4 verse 11 and Matthew chapter 4 verse 12. But it's very possible that because of the audience... And because of the theme that Matthew omits these, these life events in the, in the story of Jesus. After all, if you're appealing to Jews, are you going to write about Jesus' interaction with a certain Samaritan woman whom the Jews saw as enemies, as the, whom the Jews saw as, as not worthy of the gospel? Are you going to give a an account at the very onset of the gospel of how Jesus is an enemy of the religious establishment, driving out the money changers, driving out, cleansing the temple. Possibly because of Matthew's audience, these events are omitted. But I want us to notice, as Jesus begins his ministry, we look at the gospel of Mark, Jesus' first words of his ministry are what? Repent. Repent. And believe Mark chapter 1 Jesus begins his ministry and the very first words out of his mouth are repent and believe in the gospel and as Jesus begins his ministry Matthew gives us a very similar account look at verse 17 from that time Jesus began to preach saying what repent for the kingdom as for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, not only is the very first words out of Jesus' mouth as he begins his ministry in the Gospel of Matthew, similar to that as he begins his, uh, his ministry in the Gospel of Mark, but it is the exact same message that John the Baptist has proclaimed in, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Look over at Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Start in verse 1. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, this is his message, verse 2, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That sounds eerily familiar to what we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we've already looked in, in depth at what the, the word, what the language repent means. And yes, it means to turn. Yes, it means to change. But more 
more than it means to change our actions, it means to change our mindset, our way of thinking, which will in turn change our actions, which will in turn change how we speak and how we live and how we, how we interact with other people. And so what is it that needs to change? It is our mindset, it is our understanding of the gospel. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's identical to John's message. And this idea of the kingdom of heaven is going to be a recurring theme throughout Matthew's gospel. Jesus is going to continually talk about the kingdom. He's going to continually talk about the kingdom of heaven. And so what I, wanted, what I want us to do this morning is I want to look at some very prominent statements that Jesus makes about the kingdom and see if we can unpack, see if we can figure out what it is that we need to repent, what it is that we need to change, what mindset it is that, that, that we need to alter in order that we can understand the message of the gospel. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. Probably the most famous sermon that Jesus would ever preach. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The very first words of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very first words of the most, of the most famous sermon that Jesus would ever preach deals with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so we see, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Skip on down to chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus makes this statement later on in the Sermon on the Mount. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then rounding out, finishing the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus again speaks about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So three times in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount does he make mention of the kingdom of heaven. Flip over to Matthew chapter 18, verse 3 and 4. Jesus, again, is speaking of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel. Jesus says, And truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. For whoever humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And finally, Matthew chapter 19, verse 23 and 24, we see Jesus again speaking of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle for, than for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus begins his ministry and he says, change your way of thinking. Repent, metaneo. Change your mindset. Alter your understanding because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom is at hand and the kingdom is not what you are thinking. It is not what you are anticipating. It is not what you are expecting. It is not a kingdom of this world. What does Jesus say in John's gospel? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. It is not about money. It is not about power. It is not about influence. It is not about what this world has to offer. My kingdom is not of this world. And as I, as the, 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 the king of glory, 
as the Messiah, the son of David, coming to fulfill the Abrahamic promise, the Davidic promise, coming to fulfill these covenants, I am coming and you need to change your way of thinking because the way that you think it's going to be fulfilled is not the way that it's going to be fulfilled. Change your way of thinking. And so what is the entrance? How do we, what is this kingdom going to look like? How do we gain entrance into this kingdom? Jesus' message is this. If we look at those benchmark statements that he just made, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The key to the kingdom is humility. Remember what Jesus said to James and John. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, let me sit on your right hand and my brother sit on your other side. When, we come, when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus said, you don't understand. It's not about power. It's not about prestige. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Humility is necessary not only is humility necessary but what does he say in chapter 5 verse 20 he says unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and pharisees well clearly there is no outward righteousness that would surpass the scribes or the pharisees so what is jesus talking about he's talking about a righteousness that is an internal righteousness because what does he say of the pharisees they're brood of vipers while they keep the letter of the law, the whole, the whole essence of the Sermon on the Mount is that you've kept the letter of the law, but you've missed the spirit of the law. It has nothing to do with, with, with how far you've, you've walked on the Sabbath day. It has nothing to do with these rabbinic laws, and it has everything to do with the law of God, which is on our hearts. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is an internal righteousness. Humility is marked as a benchmark of the kingdom of heaven. An internal righteousness. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Obedience to God's will is a benchmark for the kingdom of heaven. And then he makes two statements about little children and, and, and rich men. He says, unless you become like these little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's impossible. It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. What is he saying there? He's saying, I believe that, that Jesus is saying that there is a childlike dependence, a childlike trust that is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The rich man depends upon his wealth and his prosperity to provide him access to the kingdom of god whereas the child comes to him in full dependence we see this this pattern this theme all throughout matthew's gospel the rich man i'm sorry the rich young ruler comes to jesus and he asks this very question what must i do to enter the kingdom of heaven he has an understanding he has a way of thinking that, that, has been, that has been drilled into his brain since the moment that he could walk and that he could talk. Keep the law, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. And so what does Jesus tell him? Keep the law. But Jesus is speaking of the law, keeping the spirit of the law. It's not about the letter of the law, it's about the spirit of the law. It's about humility. Because what does the law work? It works humility. 
What does obedience to the law work? It works humility, which in turn works internal righteousness, which in turn works dependence upon God, which in turn works obedience to the will of God. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Don't murder, either externally or internally. Don't have hatred in your heart. Don't commit adultery. Don't don't lust after that which you cannot have. Don't bear false witness. Don't, Don't take that which is not yours. The law, the essence of the law, works humility, internal righteousness, dependence upon God, obedience to God's will. What is his response? Ah, I've done all that. Arrogance, pride, dependence upon self. The exact opposite of what the law was intended to work. Jesus said, sell all your possessions. Demonstrate humility. Come and follow me. Dependence upon me. Obedience to the will of God. So here's the question I have for us this morning. What are you relying upon for entrance into the kingdom of God? What are you holding on to? I got baptized when I was seven. I'm good, preacher. What are you holding on to? I've taught Sunday school my whole life. I worked in vacation Bible school. I'm a church member. I've done X, Y, Z. What are you holding on to? What is your key to the entrance of God? Because if it's anything other than dependence upon Jesus and what Jesus has done, then you are that rich young ruler. You are that person who needs to repent, who needs to change your way of thinking because church membership no more makes you a Christian than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Getting wet in a baptistry no more cleanses you from sin than, than, than anything else. If, you, if you're, you can be a sinner and you can go down in a baptistry, a, a dry sinner, come up a wet sinner. It is the blood of Jesus that washes us and cleanses us from sin. Baptism is simply a demonstration, a representation of what is taking place internally. What are you holding on to? What are you, what are you clinging to for your entrance into the kingdom of heaven? Because if it is not Jesus then you're clinging to the wrong thing and you need to repent. You need to change your way of thinking because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the kingdom is not of this world. Jesus makes the statement, change your way of thinking. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he calls his disciples. Verses 18 through 22. Now, When we read this account, it gives us the impression that Jesus is just casually walking by the Sea of Galilee and he starts calling names. Andrew, Simon, come on, let's go. We have places to go, people to meet, things to do. Come on, let's go. And then he sees James and John. He says, hey, guys, you know, something more important for you to do. Come on, let's go. And he never even slows down and he just kind of picks up these guys on his way to whatever, wherever he's going, whatever it is he's doing. But I want to point out that, that while that's how the account appears, that this is not Simon, this is not Andrews, this is not James and John's first interaction with Jesus. In fact, we see that in John chapter 1, verse 40 and 42, that they have already come in contact with Jesus. Flip over there with me, if you will. John chapter 1, 
Peter and, uh, Peter and Andrew, as well as James and John, have already met Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we know that Andrew was John the Baptist's disciples. And remember in John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus looks upon Jesus coming, topping the hill, and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Andrew and Peter have heard John the Baptist, whom they were following, say, there is one who is coming who is greater than I, and whose thong of his sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. And there he is. He is the one. He is the Lamb of God. And so they've heard their teacher, their master, their, their Lord, John the Baptist, say, there is the one who is greater. I must decrease that he might increase. He is the Lamb of God. He is the true Lord. He is the Messiah. Not only do we see that there in John's Gospel, but look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 1. We see this interaction with Jesus and the Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee. John chapter 1, verse, uh, John, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It came about in those days they were pressing around him, listening to the word of God. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of them, which was Simon's, and asked to put a little bow out from the land. He sat down and began teaching the multitudes. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water, let down your nets. Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked all night and caught nothing, but at your bidding I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Simon Peter saw that. He fell down at Jesus' feet. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord, for I am amazed. For amazement had seized him and all of his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also James and John Sons of Zebedee were partners with Simon and Andrew. He said, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought the other boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter and Andrew, James and John, they knew Jesus. They had seen the miraculous works that he had done. It, they had heard from John the Baptist that this is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. This is God's anointed one. And so when Jesus calls them to follow him, it was not an empty calling. It was a calling of great importance. But I want us to notice something else. Jesus met his disciples and called them, not out of a moment of desperation, but out of a moment of of triumph and success. The disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, had a successful fishing venture. The scripture tells us that they had multiple boats. It says that, that, that they were partners, that, that there was, this, there was an, an enterprise that they were engaged in, and all accounts tells us that they were successful that they were profitable, 
that, that the favor of God and the blessings of God were upon them, that these men were successful. They weren't destitute. They weren't at rock bottom. We have this idea and this mindset that, that the only time that, that we meet Jesus, the only time that people come to, come to grips with the reality of their sin is whenever they're at rock bottom, whenever, whenever life has kicked them in the teeth and there's nowhere else to look. That's not when the disciples met Jesus. He wasn't the best alternative of a bunch of bad choices. It wasn't, well, I don't have anywhere else to turn, so I guess we'll turn to Jesus. No. Jesus, Jesus was not the best choices of a bunch of bad alternatives, but rather Jesus is the better choice of the best alternatives. Luke tells us that the disciples had the most successful day of fishing that they've ever that they've ever had, that their boats were sinking as they were coming ashore because they were so loaded with fish. And they had the choice. Do we take this record catch and go to the market and potentially make more money than we've ever made in our entire life and buy more boats and be more advantageous, make be, be more successful than we've ever had in this world? Or do we realize that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and we trade everything that this world has to offer for the world that is to come? The call to follow Jesus was not in the midst of desperation. It was not in the midst of, of, of drug addiction or in the midst of, of poverty, in the midst of, of abasement. It was in the midst of, of prosperity. And Jesus said, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I will give you what this world cannot give you. This is not the only example in Scripture where we see Jesus meeting people in prosperity and advantage. Galatians chapter 1. Paul gives his testimony. And I want us to listen to what he says. Verse 13. You have heard of my former manner, the life of Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. I want us to understand, Paul was a very wealthy man. He came from means. How do we know this? Because he was sent away by his parents to be educated by the Pharisees. He was sent away to be educated by, by, in, in Jerusalem by a Hebrew scribe. In order for that to take place, you have to have money. Not only did he have money, but he was unbelievably successful. It says that he was more, that, that he was advancing beyond all of his peers. He was the Bill Gates of the Pharisees. He was the, the Steve Jobs of the Pharisee world. He was successful. In fact, he he beseeched, he, he entreated Jerusalem, he entreated the, the, the religious leaders, hey, let me be your point man to wipe out this whole Jesus movement. I'll take care of this. And they endorsed him. 
Paul was unbelievably successful at what he was doing. He was very well respected amongst all of the, the, the Jewish leaders. But look at verse 15. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, had called me through His grace, when He was pleased to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult with flesh and blood. So when God called me, I didn't have to, to, to weigh, okay, am I going to follow Jesus or am I going to, 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 to follow this world? Because the call to follow Jesus is so much greater than anything that this world has to offer. John chapter 19. There's a man by the name of Nicodemus who approached Jesus in John chapter 3. And guess what Jesus talked to him about? Entrance into the kingdom of God. Lest a man be born again, he shall not enter the kingdom of God. Seems like this is a theme that Jesus kind of camps out on, doesn't it? Lest a man be born again. And Nicodemus says, I don't understand. How can a man be born a second time? How can I enter into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. Not be born a second time, but be born again. Be born from above. Nicodemus, I believe through prayer, through study of Scripture, through revelation of the Holy Spirit, comes to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. It tells us in Genesis, and sorry, in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus was the teacher of the law. That he was very possibly the chief Pharisee. He was successful beyond all measures. A man of means, a man of power, a man of influence. He was appointed by the Pharisees. Hey, go figure out who this Jesus guy is. He was very well respected. Had tremendous amount of influence. John chapter 19, verse 38, 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted him permission. He came, therefore, and took away his body. And Nicodemus also came, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds of weight. Nicodemus spent his own money, bought spices and oil to anoint the body of Jesus. Why? Because he understood that the call to follow Jesus was greater than anything that this world had to offer. So we're presented with two questions this morning. Two questions from the text. The first question is this. What are you relying upon for entrance into the kingdom? Are you relying upon something you have done? a prayer that you have prayed, a decision that you have made, or are you relying upon what Jesus has done? The second question I have is, is God calling you to follow Him? Is He calling you to change your understanding, to change your mindset, that the things of this world are perishing, are fleeting, and they don't matter? The car you drive, the house you live in, the amount of money in your 401k are all irrelevant. Because James says our lives are but a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. And when you stand before the King of glory, 
Is he going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant? If he's called you to follow him, he's not concerned with your retirement portfolio. He's not concerned with the car that you drive, the prestige that you have on this earth. He's concerned with humility. He's concerned with your internal righteousness, which is ascribed to us by Jesus. He's he's concerned with your obedience to God's will and your dependence upon Him. That's what He addressed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Your righteousness must be internal, must surpass that of the Pharisees. You must be obedient to God's will. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of God. We must be as little children, childlike dependents, for if we depend upon ourselves, the rich man will not inherit the kingdom of this earth. God is calling you to follow him. Will you be obedient? In just a few moments, we're going to sing a hymn of appeal. As we do, I want you to ask yourself these questions. What am I relying on to to enter the kingdom of heaven? Am I relying on something that I have done? Or am I relying on Jesus? Is God calling me to follow Him? The message of the gospel is very clear. That we're born into this world sinners. Romans says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the rest of Romans 6 says that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That God demonstrates His great love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if we would place our faith and trust in Christ, Romans 10 says, Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is God calling you to follow Him? Let's pray. Father, I believe that just as you called Peter and Andrew, just as you called James and John, that today you still call your disciples. You call them not based upon who they are, but you call them based upon who you are. You call them based upon your grace and your mercy. You call us to serve. There's some here this morning whom you've called to serve. You've called to serve right here at Redeemer. And you've called them not out of desperation, not in a moment of of hardship, and weakness and despair where they have nowhere to turn, but you called them in the midst of their prosperity, in the midst of their success, and you said, come follow me. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom of heaven is greater than anything this world has to offer. There's also those here this morning who've been relying upon themselves, been relying upon 
yesterday's decision, been relying upon baptism, church membership for entrance into the kingdom, and this morning, by your Holy Spirit, you've revealed to them that there is only one way that entrance into the kingdom is granted. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by me. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you to come. As we sing this hymn of appeal, this hymn of invitation, may you do business with God this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.